So most of you don't know how my wife and I met. It was probably about two weeks before I was going to go on a deployment when my roommates at the time, they decided that it'd be a really good idea to set us up. (laughs) So, I love you, by the way. (laughs) So they invited her over for dinner and uh, a night of playing Settlers of Catan, which is, by the way, the best board game ever. I don't know if you guys play that, but you're missing out if you haven't. So it was a good night. We played Settlers of Catan, we hung out, we had good laughs, And that was it. However, I needed a date to an upcoming wedding. And so, a couple days later, I asked my wife, at the time was not my wife, I asked her if she would be my date to this wedding. And she said yes, but what I didn't communicate to her was that I wasn't necessarily interested in like a long-term relationship. (laughs) Now, I mean, she was like, she's super cute. Um, there's no doubt about that, but I just, I don't know, maybe it just wasn't the timing or, or what, but I just wasn't interested. I wasn't, I wasn't ready for a relationship, but I didn't tell her that. So we went on multiple dates, and then after the wedding, I eventually told her that I wasn't necessarily interested in anything long-term, and uh, she had some unkind words to say to me about that for leading her on, rightfully so. But at the time... I couldn't see the treasure that she would become to me because I was blinded by these preconceived ideas about what I expected from her and from a relationship. So in the opening passage that Tom just read, specifically in Mark 8, 22 through 26, Jesus heals a blind man. However, he heals a blind man in two phases. You've got to ask yourself, Why in the world would Jesus heal a blind man in two phases? I mean, Mark makes it clear in chapter 1, verses 40 through 45, that Jesus could heal somebody simply simply by reaching out his hand and touching him and saying the words, be clean. But he doesn't in this passage. Why? I think it's because Mark is doing something for us. He's showing us, he's giving us an illustration about what it means to have spiritual sight. He's contrasting spiritual blindness with spiritual sight, and he's using it to apply to the passages that we're about to look at and identifying who Jesus is. And so we're going to come across three scenarios. The first is the blind. These are people who are blinded by a misunderstanding about who Jesus is. Next, these are, we're going to come across the fuzzy, or those who can't see quite clearly because they are somewhat blinded by their preconceived ideas about Jesus. And then finally, clear-sightedness. This is what we're looking for, clear-sightedness. And the main question that we're going to try to answer throughout this entire passage is, who is Jesus? Who is he, and do you know him in the way that he has revealed himself in Scripture? Do you have spiritual eyes? Do you have spiritual sight to see him for who he is? Or are you blinded? by trying to fit him into your preconceived ideas. So let's look at the passage. Let's go to verse 27. I'll read it. And Jesus went on his way to, with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now, I've been taught that if you need to have a difficult conversation with somebody, you usually start off with something a little more lighthearted. You might ask them something like, hey, did you see the ball game last night? 
Or maybe, hey, I see you're into essential oils and IPAs. That's pretty cool. I don't know. <laughs> but you want to start off with something lighthearted. You don't want to just dive into the, to the details and the tough conversation. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here. He's asking them a much easier question. He's seeing if they've done their homework, and he's doing it to prepare them for the midterm exam that he's about to give them. And their response is designed to contrast spiritual blindness with spiritual sight. So what do they say? Let's look in verse 28. And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. Now, interestingly enough, the people's identification of Jesus in this way was no surprise to Jesus. It was no surprise to the disciples, and for an attentive reader to Mark's gospel, it would be no surprise either. Because in chapter 6, King Herod asked the same question, who is Jesus? And he receives from the people the exact same response. They say, maybe he's John the Baptist. King Herod's like, no, man, I killed him. Maybe he's Elijah. Well, no, because we know John the Baptist comes in the spirit of Elijah, so clearly not Elijah. What about one of the prophets? This is referring to back to one of the Old Testament prophets, for whatever reason, they believed that an Old Testament prophet would be resurrected from the grave. And so maybe they thought that Jesus is one of these Old Testament prophets. However, they're wrong. They're wrong. They don't see Jesus for who he really is. And that wasn't a shock to them. However, it should be. It is a shock for them not to see clearly who Jesus is. Jesus didn't come to an obscure place. He didn't come in the middle of the Amazon rainforest in the year 1999. He came to the Jewish people who were aware of the timing of the Messiah's arrival contained in prophecies of Jeremiah 25 and Daniel 9. Not to mention in Mark's gospel, he's doing everything he can to show this contrast. Uh, he intends to show Jesus as having authority to command demons and disease in chapter 1, 21 through 30, 34, to forgive sins, which is, by the way, only something God can do in chapter 2. He even demonstrated authority over the sign, the sacred symbol of the Mosaic covenant, that is, the Sabbath. Mark intends to show Jesus through these miracle passages as not only being a divine man as the Greco-Roman world would have received him, but better yet, as the Son of God. Jesus continues to confirm his identity in these passages by healing the sick, by calming a storm, by healing a man possessed by a demon, healing a synagogue ruler's daughter who possibly died, a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. He feeds 5,000 men, which there are actually more women and children there, with five loaves of bread and two fish. He walks on water. He heals the sick. He heals the deaf. He feeds 4,000 more people and a blind man at Bethsaida, which we just read about. They simply did not believe who Jesus was. They didn't see him clearly, despite the many miracles that he performed, despite their full tummies, and despite his proclamation about the gospel and teaching about the kingdom of God. So the crowd, they didn't understand. They should have understood who Jesus was, but they did not. Their problem was that they were spiritually blinded. So how about his disciples? How did they fare? Pick up in verse 29. And he asked him, but who do you say that I am? In the original language, there's, there's extra emphasis placed on the you in this question. And don't be fooled by the way that it's phrased. What Jesus is actually saying is you. Who do you say that I am? This 
is an important question. The disciples at this point in time, they witnessed the exact same miracles as the people. They, were, they heard all of Jesus' teaching and they had private lessons from him. They should, at this point in time, be able to see who Jesus is. They should know him. And Jesus, by the way, he's not biting his fingernails, hoping that they, that they answer correctly. John 2.25 says, Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So he knew their response. He knew their hearts. He knew exactly what they were going to say. So what's going on here? This midterm exam that Jesus is giving them isn't for them to tell Jesus so that he can know. It's so that they can know. This is to prove to themselves that they actually know who Jesus is. The Gospel of Mark, it was not given to the Roman Empire. The Gospel of Mark wasn't given to the Jews. It was given to the church. And so this Gospel account, and Mark in particular, he isn't necessarily being evangelistic. Instead, He's worried about discipleship. This message is for the church. And so he's asking you today as the church, who is Jesus? Do you see him as he is? Do you know him as he is, as he declares himself to be on the pages of Scripture? So it really all revolves around this question. Eternal life hangs in the balance by how you answer this and what you do with it. So Peter and the apostles. Let's see what they say in verse 29. And he asked them, but who do you say that... Oh, wrong verse. Oh, wait, yeah, I'm in the right spot. Told you it'd be awkward. <laughs> they say, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. They get it right. They pass the midterm exam. Notice, they say, you are the Christ. Previously in Mark's gospel, and there's not a lot of dialogue... But previously, any time the disciples talk about who Jesus is, twice they refer to him as teacher. They simply say that this guy that they're following, Jesus, he's just a teacher. And so this passage is a turn for the disciples. They figure it out. They get the answer right. He is the Christ. Notice what he says, though. He says he is the Christ, not he is Christ the definite article the means that the Christ is a title. Culture, maybe, that's my guess, has inundated us with the idea that Christ is simply a name or a nickname or maybe like Jesus' last name, last name. So you might say, well, hello there, Mr. Christ. It's not. Christ is a title. The Christ means something, and it means something huge. Peter and the disciples, they mean something extremely profound when they identify Jesus as the Christ. So I want to kind of diverge from the passage and just kind of look at what that means. Uh, Dan said I'm not allowed, to, not allowed to use Greek words, but I want to use one right here. Um, Christ is a translation of the Greek word Christos. That doesn't really help us. That's why I wanted to use it. It pretty much sounds the same, and so that doesn't really help. But Christ is a translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, which means smeared, smeared one, anointed, or anointed one. Ralph Martin defines it this way. He says, quote, It was customary for someone to be anointed, that is smeared, with oil, signifying that God had set them apart for a unique task. But Israelite kings in particular, became known as Yahweh's anointed. 
So the surface level meaning then is that Christ and Messiah both mean one thing, and that thing is king. Peter's confession about Jesus, he is saying, you are the king. He's not saying you are Christ. He's saying you are the king. In a politically volatile time in which they lived, this confession was treason against Caesar. Anybody who was a competitor to the throne of Caesar's could be crucified. And so this is also the confession that's at the heart of Christianity. Jesus is the Christ, which means that Jesus is the king. Not Caesar is king, not Caesar is Lord, but that Christ is king. Christ is Lord. However, this is only a glossary meaning of the word. We don't really, we don't really take in exactly what Peter and the disciples meant by when they say Jesus is the Christ by, by getting a glossary meaning of it. So what I want to do is I want us to look at some Old Testament references and draw out what they meant when they said, Jesus, you are the Christ, you are the King. So one of these is 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7. I'm just going to go there. 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 13. Now here, God is speaking to King David, and he's making a covenant with King David. And he says this, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so the promise, the covenant that God is making with King David is he is going to put a royal descendant on his throne forever. How about another one, another messianic? passage. Psalm 2. This is a big one. Psalm 2. It says this, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Here the psalmist is speaking on behalf of the Messiah and he's recounting the words that God says to him. And God is saying to him, I am going to give you everything. The whole earth is going to be yours, and the nations that are in it, those who are rebellious against you and against me, you're going to dash them with a rod of iron. You break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The the imagery is incredibly vivid. In other words, Jesus is going to have the authority to crush all rebellious kings and kingdoms. So there's others. There's Psalm 8, there's Psalm 16, Psalm 110, Genesis 3:15, Genesis 12, 15, 17, 22, 49, Isaiah 11, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The list just continues on about these messianic passages in the Old Testament. So based on the Old Testament, Peter's confession about Jesus is that he is the messianic warrior king from King David's lineage who will militarily defeat all rebellious nations who are opposed to God and reign as king of the earth from Jerusalem forever. Notice, this is the Christ that Peter is confessing Jesus to be. And then in verse 30, Jesus doesn't say to Peter, wait, you're wrong. You didn't didn't get it right. He never said that. He may have said, let's keep that on the down low, but he never said that he's wrong. He said, yeah, yeah, that's right. That is exactly who Jesus is. 
He's the glorious messianic king. Was he a teacher? Yes. Was he a prophet? Yes. Is he divine? That is a second person of the Trinity? Absolutely. Is he human? Yes. However, he's not just these. He's also king. As Revelation tells us in 1916, he is the king of kings. He is the supreme king. He rules and he reigns and he will rule not only Israel, but the entire created cosmos forever. You've probably seen the shirt at the mall, maybe Target, says Jesus is my homeboy. Dude, no, Jesus is not your homeboy. Jesus is your king. And so you've got to ask yourself, is this who Jesus is to you? The glorious king who defeats his earthly enemies and reigns on earth forever? Or are you trying to fit him into a preconceived box? Mark and the other gospel writers, man, they go to great lengths to try to show Jesus in this way as king. I mean, look at what his charge was when he was being crucified. As he was on the cross, the charge above his head was what? Mark 15, 26, king of the Jews. The Jesus of scripture is Jesus the king in the Old Testament fulfillment of what it means to be the messianic king. Is this the Jesus that you know? Do you relate to him this way? Do you relate to him as your king? So even though Peter and the disciples, they passed the midterm, they did. They passed. They got the answer right. They didn't quite get it all right. Their vision of Jesus, just like the miracle that Jesus just performed, their vision of Jesus was fuzzy. They couldn't see him quite clear enough. So yes, their confession of Jesus is correct, but they needed more than a king. They needed a savior, a savior to save them from their sins. So Jesus, in verse 31, he expands upon their answer, and he says, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. By the way, son of man, this is another royal title, just like the Christ. Son of man is a royal title that comes from Daniel chapter 7. Jesus is totally on board with thinking of himself as king. So judging by Peter's response in verse 32, this is not the king that he understood Jesus to be. Death is not glorious. Death is not warrior-like. It's not expanding on national Israel to the ends of the earth and crushing the Romans. And quite possibly, after Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah, this could be life-threatening to him and the disciples because they just confess that there's another king out there besides Caesar and they are in jeopardy because they just committed treason against him. So they were offended by Jesus and his explanation about what his mission was. I think that's because of two reasons. The first reason is from Isaiah. Isaiah 53.2. He says this. He, has no, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. In other words, he was not Messiah-like enough for their ideals. Jesus, they expected him to be born in, in like the courts of kings. Instead, he was born in a manger. They didn't expect their Messiah to be homeless. Who would? But notice Isaiah's passage, Isaiah 53, 2. He says that 
He had no majesty that we should look at him. This idea of spiritual sight, of spiritual blindness, is all throughout Isaiah's book. It starts in Isaiah 6 when God commissions Isaiah and he says, I'm going to send you to a people who can't hear, who can't see, who are spiritually blind, spiritually deaf. They don't understand. And Mark, with this passage, is playing off of that idea. So that's the first one reason why they were offended by Jesus' explanation. He wasn't Messiah-like enough. Second reason, because they understood the rest of the passage in Isaiah about the suffering servant. For instance, in 53.5, it says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought peace. He goes on to say, Stricken for the transgression of my people. And then in verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. And then in verse 12, because he poured out his soul to death, bore the sins of the many and makes intercession for the transgressors. They could not see Jesus clearly because they knew he was talking about himself as the suffering servant of Isaiah. And they had no preconceived ideal about connecting the mighty Messiah, the mighty king with the suffering servant. Why? Here's the big question. Why couldn't they? I think it's because they were blinded by their sins. They didn't see themselves as needing a savior from their sins. Instead, they were looking for a savior from the Romans, not sin. However, as we just said, simply coming as king, the, the majesty of the Messiah was not enough. We needed somebody, they needed somebody to save us from our greatest oppressors, sin and death. So seeing Jesus clearly requires something from you. It requires that you see yourself as an unrighteous sinner in need of the salvation that only comes through King Jesus' blood. So it might have been easy for them to say that they wanted a king to save them from their enemies, that is the Romans. It might have been a more difficult thing to admit that they are sinners and in need of someone to save them from their sins, but it is most challenging, maybe near impossible, to hear your king, the Christ, the one that you've been hoping to come into the world, that you and your parents and your parents' parents and your entire nation has been anticipating say to you that he is the one who will die in your place to save you from your sins and it will be at the hands of his own people. I think this is the thrust of Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. It's offensive because it causes you have to admit sin guilt and it's your very sinfulness that sent him to the cross. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 18? He said, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then he goes on in verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified, that is we preach the king crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Jesus came as the glorious, mighty, messianic king to deal with sin once and for all. They may have believed that the sacrifice of bulls and goats on Yom Kippur, that is the Day of Atonement, which, by the way, is this Tuesday and Wednesday, was sufficient to have forgiven sins and to become justified by God. However, Hebrews 10.4, my paraphrase, dead bulls and goats don't take away sin. Also, in Hebrews 9.14, only a sinless Messiah, only a sinless king can take away the sins of the world. 
So on the cross, Jesus, the king, mind you, he paid in full the accrued debt of his people's sins. This means completely done away with, that if you are King Jesus' people, you have been justified before God by the sacrificial atoning blood of your king, of your king. And so do you see Jesus in this way? As the Messiah, as the king who bore the shame of the cross so that you, would not ha- that you would not have shame on account of your sins before God. The answer offended the disciples because they would have to face their sin guilt before the eyes of their very king. So they expected Jesus to come with majesty and kingly pomp, but instead he came with humility and a cross. Does that offend you? It offended them. So even though the disciples, they rightly identified Jesus, they identified him as king, they were too blinded by their sin to see their need for their king to save them from those sins. By the way, all that stuff about Jesus defeating his earthly enemies and setting up the kingdom of God for Mount Zion is completely true and will happen. Even right now, as Hebrews said, going back to Hebrews, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's Hebrews 1.3. What does it mean to say that he sat down? Well, one, his purifications for sin was finished, but two, it means that he's enthroned as king. Secondly, the right hand of the majesty on high. These are code words. It means second in command only to God the Father. And it's by no coincidence that this is similar to the story that Dan told us last week about Joseph, how he's betrayed by his brothers, he goes down to the pit, and God raises him up to glory, to the second, to second in command, only to Pharaoh, in which case he's able to bring blessing to the nations. So Jesus is enthroned right now with a resurrected body, and he will come back as the glorious messianic king that Peter and the apostles were hoping for. So, do you see Jesus clearly? If so, I think the proper response is to say yes and to stand in awe of his majesty and his splendor as the glorious king and to stand in awe of his sacrificial atoning life that he gave on your behalf. But also, it's to bow. To bow, to humbly lower yourself before his throne and own up to your sins. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I think no doubt, one of the most challenging things for us, for any person, is to admit sin and guilt before God. But I think this is kind of the essence of what we do as Christians. We repent of sin and we bow to King Jesus. All the while, we trust that his finished work on the cross is sufficient to deliver us from our sin, and we remain faithful to him in anticipation of his return to restore the world in our lives to the new creation. You might say then that he came as a king, but man, his death on the cross and resurrection, that sealed the deal. There's no other beside him. So if you know Jesus... If you know who he is, if you have spiritual eyes to see, the question is, have you bowed? His worthiness of your allegiance as king is not simply because he is mighty and majestic, but because he is humble and sacrificially loving. Why wouldn't you want to bow to this really good king, King Jesus? So my wife, the summer after I got back from a deployment, 
we started hanging out. We were friends. We were kind of in a group of, of friends. And little by little, I began to see who she was. And later in the fall, I decided, man, what have I been doing? I need to repent. <laughs> I need to repent. I need to ask this girl out. So I did. I asked her out, and she said no. But, <laughs> but who can blame her for that? We're married now, which is great. I just couldn't see who she was at the time, but now I am so grateful. So back to the guiding question. Do you see Jesus? Do you know Jesus in this way? And if you know him as king who gave his life for you, have you bowed? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word again and for the truth, but not just the truth, but the revelation of who you are in Jesus I thank you that you have revealed yourself through him as king, and that is how you want to relate to us, and you want us to relate to you. So I pray that, that it wasn't me speaking, but that it was you speaking through these words, and you spoke to the hearts of everyone today, and I pray that we go on throughout our lives in reverence and awe and in wonder of who you are, who King Jesus is, and the wonder of what he did to save his people from their sins. In Jesus' name, amen.